Searching for a new home? Make todayshomebc.com your online home base. With easy-to-search listings and connections to local realtors, everything you need is under one roof. Powered by Black Press Media, you can search hundreds of local listings all in one place. Access the top real estate professionals to help you find the perfect home today at todayshomebc.com. This is the Mojon Sports Podcast, a deeper dive into the great personalities we know and love. Now, here's your host, Bob the Moj Marjanovic. Welcome to episode 14 of Moj the Bio. In this episode, features Wally Buono, winning as head coach in the history of the Canadian Football League, a man with seven Grey Cup rings to his credit. But before we get to Wally... Every athlete is looking for a competitive edge, and you can find one at StokoDesign.com. The K1 Embrace System wraps your legs with over 90 feet of high-strength support cables that are directly integrated into an ultra-comfortable compression tape. The cabling is positioned to naturally move with you, supporting your knee when you need it most. You can customize your level of support with two control dials in the waistband. This is the future of knee support. StokoDesign.com this is the Mojon Sports Podcast. Time now for our feature bio. Here's Bob the Moj Marjanovic. Wally, thanks for doing this. Appreciate learning a little bit more about you. Always a pleasure, Moj. And anytime we can talk about the CFL, it's my pleasure. It's not only just given me, but so, so many people, whether it's a player, a coach, a staff member, or even the fans of the CFL has been a tremendous lifeblood for all of Canada. Well, we will talk CFL because it's a big part of your life, but we really want to talk about your journey and how the CFL impacted you and how you impacted it. But let's start off. Montreal, a three-year-old immigrates with his family from Italy. What do you remember your childhood in Montreal? Well, I don't remember much, honestly, now that I'm a grandfather and I think back to those days when you have an immigrant family. My father and uncle left for Italy in 1951, and then my mother in 1953 brought my brother and I to Montreal, considering she was a little peasant girl from Tito, Italy. She had to make her way to Naples, get on the boat, go to Halifax, get on the train, get to Montreal all by herself. It had to have been nerve-wracking. And then to get to Montreal, where it's probably minus 30 degrees Fahrenheit, she's from southern Italy. So the whole experience, when you reflect, makes you realize how much your parents have done for you. So, you know, I have a tremendous amount of respect for immigrants, especially the ones that took the chance, brought their kids here for the opportunity. Would you describe your childhood as tough? And I mean that in the sense that even for me being with an immigrant family, your parents come over with not much and, you know, that they work to basically get everything they have. And it's not like you have a golden spoon, so to speak. Well, here, Moj, I hate to tell you, the unfortunate part about it is my father died five or six years after. So I would think eight or nine and he died and my mother you know, she wasn't able to take care of us because she didn't have the education, the skill sets. So unfortunately for us, my brother and I, we were taken away from her, brought to a place called Shawbridge Boys Farm, which was about an hour and a half north of Montreal. And we were there basically for three and a half years. And Shawbridge Boys Farm at that time was a a juvenile delinquent place where the government put you when your parents weren't able to provide for you. When you're young, 
you you learn to survive. You don't let things, I guess, bother you or whatever. And we managed that three and a half years of theirs. And when I was 12 and a half, we got to go back home and my mother was on her feet at that time. And from there, we, we made things meet and it was life. How'd you get involved in sports? The thing about sports is the Shawbridge Boys Farm, this is what you did because there's nothing else to do. You're in the middle of nowhere, isolated pretty much. And the two things I can remember that I really enjoyed was swimming and hockey. I really didn't play football. So when we got out of Shawbridge Boys Farm, my brother and I were hanging out at the park. And usually at those days, you hang out, you're either cost trouble or somebody's going to get you involved in sports. And Alf Enough, I don't know if you remember the name, Alf Enough played for the Montreal Alouettes, got a scholarship to the University of Kentucky as a defensive back. And he came over one day and he was coaching a peewee team and he said, hey, you guys, you want to play football? I'd be very happy to have you on the team. So we went and he coached us both in peewee and in bantam. And from there, obviously, I played the juvenile and junior football. And Al was the big influence on us as far as getting involved in sports because then he got us involved in baseball, got us involved in hockey, got us involved in football. And his family, God bless him, even at times provided us with equipment because we couldn't afford to go out and buy it. Tell me about your hockey career. Were you like a, a Gila <laughs> point back there or a Larry Robinson? What was your style? Were you a defenseman? You categorized me. I was an offensive skilled player. <laughs> okay. Okay. And I played center and, and left wings. I played up to AAA midget in Montreal. Hockey, you needed money. You needed to be able to go to all these camps and these schools. You needed to buy all this equipment, which we didn't have. So football was easier. All you had to do was buy a pair of shoes. They provided everything else. I had to make a choice. So I played junior football when I was basically 16, 17. And, you know, Alouettes used to have every year, they would have a camp for kids that were a certain age group that potentially the American colleges, Canadian colleges could scout. And I got a scholarship to a couple of schools and ended up going to Idaho State. Yeah, and to me, that's amazing because number one, not too many Canadians were getting scholarships to U.S. schools in the 70s. And number two, it's not like today where a kid can go out and do a whole bunch of workouts, put them on a YouTube channel and get recruited by schools. To me, the fact that you wound up at Idaho State was an amazing story in itself. No, it wasn't. And even that story, I got a scholarship to the University of Arizona in my junior year. Then my senior year, we had more people come. And Ed Cavanaugh and Jeffries, he was my junior coach, but he also he coached in the States. They wanted me to go to Utah State. Okay, so I was supposed to make a decision between Utah State and University of Arizona. Well, Ed Kavanaugh and Jeff Freeze went from Utah State, and he became the head coach at Idaho State. Being a guy who didn't know Idaho State, Utah State, it sounds the same. When you look on the map, they're close. We didn't know any difference. So we ended up going to Idaho State, and we had a great uh, experience there in football, and we were very fortunate. I started all four years. I also kicked in the dome. If you can't kick in the dome, you can't kick, period. From there, J.I. Albrecht, who at that time, I think, was the GM for the Alouettes. Uh, there was no draft in those days. You were a territorial protected player. And because I was from Montreal, they had my rights, and I was able to sign with the Alouettes and go from there. What was it like playing in Montreal? Because when I think of, like, golden eras in Canadian sports, I always think to myself, it must have been amazing to be in that city 
in the late 70s, early 80s, and you've got the Expos in their heyday, the Canadians winning whatever, five cups in a row, the Alouettes winning Grey Cups, being in Grey Cup games. What was the vibe like? The vibe was tremendous because, I'm going to say this gently, the Canadians set the standard for everybody in Montreal, okay? And if you weren't winning, if you weren't involved in championships, it was tough to compete with the great Canadian teams of the time. And Obviously, we were exciting. The Expos had an exciting team. Even the soccer team, I think, was called the Many, were good. So, you know, the sports environment in Montreal was very vibrant, very alive. It just did a lot for the whole city. And when you look at Montreal at that time, it was going through a lot of different political issues with the FLQ and all that. And I think what kept the province and the city together was basically their sports teams that uh, transcended all the political stuff and uh, provided sports entertainment for the community and for the province. A lot of interaction between the athletes? Oh, yeah. Our friends were Larry Robinson and Bobby Russo and Doug Jarvis and Bob Ganey. We would play charity hockey games and Guy Lefeur would show up or Rocky Richard would show up. This is, again... You're an athlete in a city, okay? You're not a celebrity because you see yourself as no different than anybody else. So the guys all hung out together. We didn't know the baseball team as much because of the fact that they were traveling so much and all that stuff. And most of them weren't actually from Quebec, but Gary Carter and those guys, good people. I think about this classic, this Grey Cup classic they had one time on TV and Joe Scanella. I think it was the, the game where you guys wore the staples in the shoes or oh, whatever. Like and I'm watching the sideline. You talk about coaches that influence you. Joe Scanella, I'm glad he didn't influence you too much because in that game, he's on the sidelines smoking a dart in the middle of the game. I would love to see Wally Buono pacing up and down the sidelines with a dart in his mouth. Moj, Moj, again, I don't want to <laughs> forget uh, Joe Scanella. We had defensive coaches, uh, Rod Rust and uh, Dan Sikanovich. Those guys were smokers. And it's our equipment manager, his job when Scanella was the coach was to follow him with a pack of cigarettes, <laughs> okay? And when he put his hand behind his back, he wanted a lit cigarette. So Red Batty, who's the equipment manager for the Green Bay Packers, that was his job during the game. Wow. Okay, was to make sure Scanella had a cigarette. And I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm glad that players have gotten smarter. And you could tell how tense the game was by how many cigarettes the guy would smoke. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and that's just how it was. And today the athletes are way more conscious of their bodies, what's good for them, what's bad for them, than I think we were at our time. What made you get into coaching? I always enjoyed the cerebral part of football. And I always relied on my intelligence as a football player. You know, I didn't have the same skill sets as a Carl Cornell or a Mike Widger or Chuck Sapek or a Tom Kuzno or a William Hampton. These guys were great athletes. If you're smart and you can anticipate, usually you're a little bit a step or two faster than you normally are. And the guy that was a tremendous influence, there was two actually, but the one was Rod Russ. Rod was very committed to including the players in the game plan, including the players in everything about what happened. And even to the point where he let the players call their own game. During the week, he would set you up, train you, tell you what, and then in the game, you called your own game. So the captains, myself, Carl Cornell, Tony Proudfoot, we took a lot of pride in that. And all of a sudden, we're calling the game. We're talking to Coach Rust about 
here's what we think, here's what we think. And all of a sudden it becomes a little more cerebral for you than just going out there and banging heads. Then Marv Levy was, was a tremendous mentor because again, Marv was very cerebral, very exact on everything he wanted to do. Here in 77, we're at the Olympic Stadium. Saturday morning before the game, there's eight inches of snow on the field. Marv, being a special teams coach from his NFL days, has to do special teams. So he goes and finds a scraper, scrapes about a three-foot box. Don Sweet can kick the ball off. Okay, we're out there running in eight inches of snow covering kicks. Okay, mm. And this is Marv. Marv was never going to surprise you. He was never going to do things that you're going to scratch your head. And he very much respected the players. He expected the players to be pros. And he treated them like men. And if he didn't provide the little excellence he wanted, he'd cut you. It was black and white. In Calgary, you take the Calgary job in 1990. And one of your goals is to change the culture. There's a great story to this. And I'm going to go back to something that you would like because it's a story about Scotty Bowman. Scotty told this story to us one time, how the Canadians finally got over the intimidation of the Flyers. And he said, after the Flyers had won a couple of cups, they had a preseason game and they said, tonight we're not going to get intimidated. And I think he brought up some guys from Nova Scotia. And Scotty says, that night, it was ugly, but from then on in, they couldn't intimidate us. And that kind of changed the culture and set the tone for the Canadians going on and winning all those cups. And it was interesting because you had a situation in Calgary where there was a charity basketball game against the Eskimos. And you kind of set the tone early. Tell us about that story. You're embarrassing me. Okay. So what happened? You know, exactly right. And you know, to be honest with you, the Canadians influenced me a lot. Uh, in my philosophy and how they did things. So when I took over the job, the Eskimos, I can't remember if there was another team or two, but we were going to play a charity basketball game in Red Deer. Okay, so all the guys who wanted to go up, I brought him in, uh, had a little chat with them. I said, guys, I said, uh, when you go up there, okay, have fun, do what you got to do. But remember, this is not a charity basketball game. Okay, I want you to go up there. I want you to beat them. Okay. I want them to understand that things are going to change. Okay, it's no longer the great Eskimos pounding the lowly Stampeders. That's going to change. Your mindset's going to have to change. And when you go there, do that. So they went there, they played, they won. Okay, and again, sending the message every time you compete with them, whether it's a charity basketball game or anything, it's going to be a war. And that's how you start to change the mindset of your organization, your fan base. And here's the big one, Moj, the media. You even got to work on the media and stuff. Was it tough leaving Calgary after all the success that you had there and coming to BC? You know what? It was tough only because of the fact that we were entrenched in Calgary. Our kids were in school. They were in college. My son was in grade 11. We had bought a five-acre parcel <laughs> to retire on. You know what? But you know what? I believe this wholeheartedly. The good Lord had a different plan for me and my family. It happened with the Frederick thing, and that's a long story in itself. When Bob Ackles and David Braley brought me to BC, it was a second beginning, okay? For me, it was a, it revitalized my career. It revitalized who I was, and it gave me a great opportunity to be in a great organization with great people, 
and a great market, Moach. Like I said, BC, I still believe, is a great football market. And with Bob Ackles and with David Braley and with all the other people, we did a lot of exciting things there. Hey, second beginning almost became an end. In 2004, you've got to go in for triple cardiac bypass surgery at the end of the year. And you coach knowing that you have this condition at the tail end of the season. How did that impact you moving forward? I believe that the good Lord protected me. He understood where I was physically, and so did I. And maybe I was naive. And But I told the surgeon, no, there's no way. I'll come back in January and get this done in January. And he said, you don't understand how severe it is. I says, honestly, I can't. I got to finish the season. I'll give up my Hawaii trip, but I got to finish the season. And he says, just so that you don't get too stressed or too excited, we'll put you on some medication. I said, I say, hey, doc, I never get excited and I never get too stressed. And 2004, Moj, if you remember, we had some unbelievably tight, tense games. And I can remember the Western final still in a BC place. It was late in the game, third down and 24. Dave Dickinson drops back. Jason Claremont's running a 25-yard dig route. <laughs> okay. Dave holds on to the ball, holds on to the ball, holds on to the ball, steps up, throws it to him. We get the first down. Okay, they march down. He throws the ball, I think, to G-Roy in the corner for the touchdowns. We end up beating Saskatchewan by a point. Now, here's the funny and the interesting story. So at the end of the game, the players had this huge bucket of ice that they were going to shower me with, which probably would not have been good. But Richard Harris felt... And he didn't know anything. He just, I just felt there was something wrong with you. So I didn't want them to throw the ice on your back. Hmm. Okay. I said, Richard, just so you know, you saved my life. You know that. Right? And the sad thing there is Richard Harris, God bless him, was a great man and a great football player. He died in Winnipeg at his desk at work with a heart attack, which was sad. But just to put it in perspective, sometimes with Moj, we do what we do because we our passion and our love for our work whether it's being in broadcasting or being in sports is much greater sometimes in our common sense <laughs> more with wally buono coming up but first got to tell you about my good friends at okay tire and langley the delaney's whenever it comes to tires or meeting your automotive needs i only send my friends to one place okay tire and langley OK Tire and Langley is more than just tires. It's about complete automotive care, and it's about being treated right by my good friends, the Delaney family. Delaney's OK Tire and Langley, 19863 Fraser Highway, or call them at 604-530-2545. You're listening to the Moj on Sports Podcast. Redefine how you lead. Take the next step in your leadership journey with Ignite Management. Become a leader that positively impacts those around you. Create an environment where your team thrives. Be in control of your own development with a detailed analysis of your leadership style, complete with actionable insights and recommendations. Visit ignitemanagement.ca for more info. You mentioned this a couple of times, talk about the good Lord and your faith. It's interesting when you hear the successful coaches, they always talk about being even keel. Do you think your faith has helped you navigate through a lot of those difficult situations you've gone through and stressful situations by keeping you even keel? Well, definitely most. Everybody has something they believe in. 
Okay, and everybody has something that stabilizes them. Everybody has something that motivates them. And I think a man's or a woman's faith can do that. And to me, there was times when things were trying or when things were out of control. But the thing that's never out of control is your personal faith, is what you believe in. And if anything could keep you stable and can keep you even keeled, because in our job, there's too many highs and too many lows, and you can't be up and down all the time because you get burnt out. Okay, so my sense is my faith was important to me because it gave me a standard one to live by, a standard to do things. And football, as you know, Moj, is a tough sport, but what's tougher is dealing with the men, the people that are involved in the games. When you got to cut somebody, when you got to cut somebody that's been with you for 10, 12 years, or when you got to fire somebody, these are all hard things. But it's every day, every day that you come to practice, every day you come to work, you're being evaluated. You win Grey Cups in BC in 06 and 11. You retire after the 11 season, yet you come back in 2016. Why did you come back? I mean, was Sandy's credit card bill through the roof. You needed the money. I mean, <laughs> what was going on there? You know what? I had no intentions of coming back, but we had built our organization and we had taken a lot of pride in it and my friendship I guess my loyalty my responsibility to David Braley you know I think if it had been a different owner at a different time I don't think that would have occurred for me it was trying to put the organization back on a more stable position but it didn't uh, fulfill itself we had a good season in 216 we were average 17 and 18. And if we had had healthy quarterbacking, I think in the 17 and 18, we probably would have been two or three wins better. Okay. That was done basically in my mind to pay back David Braley for all his confidence, for all his respect, for all his beliefs. Coach, in 2011, I should have been fired. I think any other owner would have fired me. And honestly, if I was David, I would have fired but he didn't because of the fact that we had gone through a lot and he felt that we would right the ship. And he stood up, went public, said, hey, we're not firing. We're going to keep everything status quo. I have confidence in law. Didn't say that much. So to me, when, when it was time for me to step up for him, then I did. 0-6 start. You won the Grey Cup that year. Was that your greatest coaching job? <laughs> well, it was my greatest job of convincing both coaches and players that we were a good team playing really bad football and it could be turned around, okay? So, Moja, as you coach, you, you got to manage people, okay? You got to get people to buy into what you're selling. And if you can do all that, the opportunity to win becomes way greater. And we got the players and we got the coaches to buy into what I wanted to get a comment. And it, it happened after a buy. We had a buy. I told the guys, hey, go home, take your days off. I'm not going to punish you by not giving your days off. You're a pro. Uh, the coaches, same thing. You know, I said, hey, come back. We're going to change things. So we did. As a coaching staff, we made a number of changes. As players, we just changed our attitude because we didn't, other than bringing Arlan Bruce, I don't think we made any other changes. What's the foundational principle of getting players to buy in to what you're selling. What do you have to appeal to? You've got to appeal to your leadership group to be supportive of you, what you're selling, and believe 
you and what you're selling. And then you got to be consistent over and over again. You can't talk the talk. You got to walk the walk. Here's a quick story. So we're in Hamilton and I'm at the press conference and I tell them, hey, the bus is leaving at one o'clock. Okay. With or without me. Okay. 12.59. I get out of the press conference. So I'm hustling, trying to get on the bus. I'm no more than 20 feet away from the bus. It's one o'clock. They close the doors and they take off. So I'm stuck there. Okay. So we have the 10 o'clock meeting that night. So I said, guys, you couldn't wait 20 seconds. They said, coach, what do you always preach? Bus leaves at one o'clock with or without you. Okay. Why would we make an exception for you? The rule is the bus leaves at one o'clock. Be on it. Okay. So I said, point well made. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Okay, it was hot and humid. So part of that is, like you say, getting the players to believe it because you got to also walk the walk. When you say something to the players, especially to the players, you got to be believable. They don't have to always like you and you don't always have to like them, but they will get the job done for you. The other thing, too, I think with leaders, like you talk to coaches, GMs, and people that lead. And the other thing, too, is don't be awesome. Be who you are, whether they like that or not. But soon as you start to be inconsistent or BS them, they read through that and then you've kind of lost Most The players, they know you and they know what you should be doing before you do. And you're totally right. You know, when you have a veteran player and you baby him, if his abilities are starting to diminish, the players know you either got to trade him or cut him. And if you don't do it, they believe that you're not doing your job. Okay because it's too hard, it's too tough. So from that point of view, you know, that locker room, yes, they have to have confidence in you and they have to know that you'll do the right thing for them. And the right thing sometimes for them is, is removing a high profile player because that player is no longer helping that team to win. It's a very callous kind of way to think. These are men that want to win. They want to win championships and they want to stay employed. And when you win, you usually stay employed. You're not fooling the players. And when you think you are, that's when you lose them. And that's when you lose a locker room. You've won great cups as a player and as a coach. I imagine they have to be much more satisfying as a coach, basically leading a group of men to a championship. Well, do you know what? As a player, you worry about yourself. <laughs> okay, seriously. Yeah. And what you know what I'm talking about, right? You go there and you worry about yourself. When you're a coach, you got to worry about everybody, especially when you're in charge, right? And you got to make not only is your star player happy, this the 39th, the 45th, the 50th player is happy. You got to make sure your equipment people are happy. You got to make sure your owner is happy. You got to make sure the media is happy. And at the end of the day, you don't have a whole lot left for yourself, but you know that's what your job entails. And if you can put everybody else before you. I think the people see that you care about them and that you love them. You know, I can love somebody without necessarily liking them. You've influenced a lot of players, a lot of coaches. Who's your greatest influence? And I know you talked about Marv Levy and Rod Rust, Fanuf growing up. Was there anyone else that kind of stands out for you? As I talked about my spiritual beliefs, that's been a tremendous influence to me, uh, you know, since my mid-20s, because being in the sports world, being in the limelight is not always easy. There's a lot of hard things that go on. There's a lot of things that go on that you can get in trouble with. But I think it's always kept me on the straight path. Obviously, when you have a mother like I did who worked, sacrificed, it was always about 
uh, making sure my brother and I had enough, even though she never had enough. She did that by herself in a time when it was tough. And like I say, Moj, I don't remember my mother making more than, I'm going to say, 75 cents or a dollar an hour. And she raised two boys by herself. Okay, all that time, didn't speak the language. You know, how she did it, I still don't know. And my mother always used to say, hard work never hurt anybody. You can always go out and you can always work hard. And that always stuck with me. So to me, I've always felt you work hard, you be upfront with people, you be, you know, treat them with respect and good things will happen. I believe that's happened. The coaching people are the people that have had a big influence because my whole life has been basically around sports. My wife asked me, she says, if you weren't coaching, what would you do? I said, I don't really know. I have a teaching degree. I did do some teaching when I was in Montreal, but it was always as a sub. I says, I really can't do anything else. She won't let me do anything around the house <laughs> because every time I do it, I screw it up even worse. And she's got to pay twice as much to have somebody come in and repair it. So coaching has been the biggest part of my life and I've been truly blessed by it. You came out of retirement not only once, but twice, the second time after the 2021 season to become the interim general manager of the Edmonton oh, no. Elks. Are you happening. done with the CFL? I was not the interim GM. I was the advisor to the board. See, my role was strictly to put candidates in front of the board committee to pick as a head coach. Okay, I said, look, I don't want any of that. And I talked to Terry Jones because I was annoyed. I said, Terry, that's not how the agreement was. And the only reason I even talked to Terry was because of such a big name in, in Edmonton. And then he said, I, no, I wasn't. What I was an advisor to the committee. And those are the kind of things I do. I enjoy doing them. I would do them because I believe, and I'm going to say this nicely, I believe the CFL should have people on its payroll that have that tremendous background, that tremendous history in whatever whether it's helping the football ops, whether it's the business ops, because there's times organizations are being run by people who have no experience at all. So if they have assets like that, and a lot of leagues do that, the NFL does that when they bring in all these special consultants, it's, I think, a viable way to help pass the knowledge on to people. Okay, and when you look at the BC Lions, I believe Rick Wallace today is doing that for, for the new owner. I see a comeback somehow, some way, because number one, <laughs> you're probably going to drive your wife nuts around the house. And number two, football's in your blood. So I don't know, maybe an advisor, consultant, whatever, somehow, some way, I smell like another comeback. My thing is, you know what, there's people that, and I know a lot of people throughout the league, and whether it's a GM, a head coach, a coach, a player, they know they can call me and we can have a talk and whatever I tell them, they can use it the way they like. And my point is I'm willing to help people, whether it's a coaching situation, whether it's a personal situation. People have done it for me. I remember when I used to call Cal Murphy or Hugh Campbell or Roy Shivers, okay? And they were with other teams. It wasn't like they were my boss. And we'd sit down and talk. And if I had something that was on my chest, they'd help me with it. So I feel that's helping other people. It's private. If Moj, if you were a coach and you came and said, what do you think about this? I'm going to keep it between you and me. Wally, this has been a lot of fun talking about your journey and your life in the Canadian Football League. Thank you so much for joining us 
on this episode. Mojo, I always appreciated you because you've been in the trenches, right? You've coached, you've played, you understand. So your questions are always, in my mind, insightful to the point. And like I said, you are a straight shooter and that's what I love about you. And I still remember one of the great moments in my coaching career is when you and I had that smoke in Montreal at five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> oh yeah, the night of the infamous charter delay. Just to wrap that story up for people that are listening was the fact that we had this charter delay. We're at the airport till two or three. Neil McAvoy finally finds a hotel, except we were at what? Dorval and we had to go to we were at Mirabel. Yeah, so we get to the other the hotel and there's we had Operation Orange where we had all the fans and sponsors on board and you look at the lineup and you're like, We're gonna be waiting here for an hour. Let's just go downstairs and smoke a cigar. So that was the story of watching the sun come up with Wally Buono in Montreal smoking a cigar. Yeah, just don't tell Sandy about that. It wouldn't go over too well. Oh yeah, I know Sandy's good, but she knows that I need to de-stress and it was a great a great hour spending with you talking sports and having a good Wally, again, thanks for doing this and all the best. Appreciate it, Moj. Thank you. The Moj on Sports Podcast. For more episodes, check out MojOnSports.com. From hidden local hotspots to outrageous wildlife rescues and trend-setting hotels, WestCoastTraveler.com shares the latest travel news from your local community and beyond. Travel the spectacular west coast of the U.S. and Canada without leaving your armchair and start taking notes for your next adventure. Make your next vacation or staycation the best it can be. Visit westcoasttraveler.com.